Happy Abadubi, last day on earth on Island 1069 WIISQS. Good morning, I'm Gwen Falosa. The show is called It's Too Early, and uh, super excited to have my guest this morning. She is an award-winning author, filmmaker, and screenwriter. Her books include Perfect Strangers and Southern Discomfort and The Babysitter. She's also a hugely experienced mountain climber. Jennifer Jordan, good morning. Good morning to you, Gwen. Now, you're in Utah, right? Salt Lake City. It It's early there. I know. I mean, when I heard the title of your show, I had to laugh. <laughs> you think it's early where you are. It's really early where I am. Oh, but thank, lucky for both of us, I'm a morning person. So Excellent, excellent. But thank you yeah. for taking the time. Now, you sure. you have done so much. Do you know this? Films and <laughs> books and journalism I've done, I, I, I've done a lot I've, I've done quite a bit actually it's 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 amazing wanted now you um did, did you start out in radio as a journalist was that where you found your footing yes I did I, I uh, took the first job that was offered to me which was typing for the program director mm-hmm. at a station in Boston and within six months she came to me and she said you're not here to type my letters what do I have to do to keep you so I, at 22 years old, said, you know, I kind of like my own talk show. Nice. <laughs> and she gave me the overnight graveyard shift just in case I was terrible and I wasn't terrible. So within a few weeks, really, I was in prime time. It's still typing her letters, by the way, but I was still in prime time. And uh, yeah, it just it, it went from there. And it, from radio, I worked in television with uh, WGBH Channel 2 in Boston. And through there, I, I, had a, I was doing a segment that was taken from me by the host of the program. I was all upset, and my producer said, wait a minute, you've done all the interviews. Write the article, for God's sake. Stop complaining. <laughs> so that became my first cover story um, in a Boston magazine. And that re- was really it. And I realized I just loved the freedom of writing and, and also the creative aspect of it, that you could get so much deeper than you can in radio and television, particularly because you've got such li- limited time. So it's, yeah. And then, and from there came my first two books on K2. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I found that the first five women who'd climbed the mountain were all dead. And my flatlander brain was like, what the hell's going on with this mountain? Mm. And uh, that curiosity took me on an expedition to K2 in Pakistan and China and then, yeah, I mean, my I went back to do a documentary for Nat Geo on the same story and ended up finding the skeletal remains of the first man who died on K2 in 1939 from Boston. So I wrote that story. Okay, let's, let's, um, let's back up to the skeleton, Jennifer. <laughs> what, what's going on with that? There must be a story. Yeah, well, K2, um, as, I call, as I call it in the book, um, is the highest graveyard in the world. And uh, and unlike Everest, where the bodies kind of stay on the mountain because Everest as a mountain is not that steep, K2 is a pyramid, a very, very steep pyramid. So all the bodies come off and they end up at base camp, end up on the glacier at the base of the mountain where I was because I am not a high altitude climber, even though I play one on TV at this point. Um and so I was, you know, my day while the team was on the mountain would be to explore the glacier at its base. And it, along with falling in a crevasse and nearly disappearing down into the Indus Gorge, I uh, ended up coming upon this graveyard. And, and I knew it was a graveyard because there were 
bits and pieces of material that hadn't been used in high altitude climbing since the 40s and 50s. And then around an ice tower, there lay a almost almost intact skeleton. And, you know, after 63 years of riding the, the glacier, he wasn't exactly, you know, a mummy. Mm-hmm. But he was, you know, he, he, was, he, he was enough of a skeleton to identify as a human being rather than an animal. And, um, and then we, my husband, well, not my husband then, my husband now, uh, found a glove with his name on it nearby the skeleton. So I knew enough about my K2 history to know who we had found. And uh, I realized that history had really given him a bad shrift. So I decided to do a little research. And within a very short period of time, realized that he was not the man that history portrayed him to be because, you know, the, the victor gets the spoils. And mm. after leaving him on the mountain in 1939, the trip leader, of course, had to make up a tale about how it was really the victim's fault. And Oof. that and that tale persisted for years until I uncovered another side of that truth. Wow. And, and that led, uh, of course, to the book, The Last Man on the Mountain. Yeah, that was The Last Man on the Mountain, yes, and, indeed. Um, the first book was Savage Summit about the women and okay. Last Man on the Mountain. And, uh, yeah, God, the, the, then that led me to doing a documentary with Greg Mortensen on, called 3,000 Cups of Tea after 60 Minutes did just a, you know, an abominable takedown of him. And I had met Greg on one of my expeditions to K2, and he became a friend. And so I watched the 60 Minutes report that accused him of fraud and lying and mismanagement and theft. And I said, wait a minute, you know, Greg Morton says many things, but he is not a, a liar and a fraud. So I started that investigation and come to find out 60 Minutes didn't even take its cameras into the villages where they accused Greg of the fraud and mismanagement. So I was like, oh, what the hell is going on here? So did that research that nearly bankrupted me and in the process became a ghostwriter. My agent came to me and said, I don't know if you'd be interested in this, but there are a couple of books uh, that need writing. And I said, what do you mean? Be, to be paid up front? Yes, I'll do it. And that became Perfect Strangers and uh, Southern Discomfort. And I realized I, the thing I love about ghostwriting is, the re- again, the research and digging in and getting to know these women and their lives and their voices enough to write their stories for them. Um, and Perfect Strangers is, of course, about one of the women who lost her leg in the Boston Marathon bombing. Mm-hmm. And that was a wonderful book to write because not only did it take me back to Boston, but it introduced me to these four amazing people. Uh, Roseanne herself, who lost her leg, and the three first responders who saved her life. And then that took me into Southern Discomforts, writing this book with a Grammy Award-winning mu- music producer, Tina Clark. And... You know, I'd, I'd never been to Mississippi, so getting me into nice. the deep, deep yeah. South and the Jim Crow South uh, was incredibly eye-opening. And Tina's a wonderful woman, and so working with her for, you know, it takes at least a year and a half to two years to, to comprehensively write a book. And then that finally brought me to The Babysitter and working with one of my best friends in the world that I met in college. And she, I was visiting, I was home visiting Boston and we were, you know, sitting on the couch with our toes tucked underneath us, sipping our wine. And she said, you know, I had this crazy dream the other, you know, few weeks ago. And I asked mom about it and come to find out, 
our babysitter in Provincetown was a serial killer. <laughs> like, okay. Okay. Put the wine down so you don't spill it on the couch. And like, what the hell are you talking about? She said, Yeah, it was just, you know, I I didn't know what was going on. I asked mom if she remembered this Tony Costa guy, and she said, Oh yeah, well, I remember he was a serial killer. <sighs> and she re, re, right. And she was like, Mom, what do you mean? We went everywhere with Tony. We were, you know, always in the motel truck, going to the dump, going to his woods out in the Truro uh, woodlands. We were doing this. He was a serial killer. And the mother goes, you know, cigarette in one hand, gin in the other, and goes, yeah, so what? He didn't kill you, did he? (laughs) And that's the opening of The Babysitter. She has a point. Not just teasing. Yeah, yeah. Um, she has a point. I mean, this this was um your friend's babysitter growing up. How how old was she when when she met him? She was seven, eight, and nine, and then he was caught right when she turned ten. Mm. Um, so you know, she heard the rumors going around P Town about you know, not even Tony, just him and bodies and murders and dismemberment. So she heard the words. But nobody ever, ever told her that, you know, Tony had, was, was the killer. She asked, where's Tony this summer? Why isn't Tony here? And nobody ever told her. They said, oh, no, he's, you know, he's headed out. He's not, you know, he's got a job somewhere else or something. He's traveling. Right, exactly. Traveling, traveling. to Walpole State Prison. Oof. And so, um, yeah, I mean, 35 years later, she went back for her B.A. because she had quit college. And... Um, in the process of journaling, which of course you have to do if you're in a creative writing program, up came these memories. And with them, this nightmare where 35 years after not even having a thought of this man, there he is clear as day in her dream with a gun to her head. And, you know, she woke up with that terror that you get with one of those nightmares and thought, wait a minute, not I mean, Tony was the good guy in my life. My mother was the one I was afraid of. Mm-hmm. Tony was the good guy. So why am I waking up with adrenaline coursing through my legs? Um, and so she started looking and, and realizing just what a heinous killer he was and tried to write the book herself. And then I was between projects and went to her and I said, you know, I'm always looking for a project that has all these elements and your story has it. Do you need help in getting it on paper? And she burst into tears and said, oh, my God, I was afraid to ask. And here we are. <laughs> she was afraid to ask. But you're you're right there. I, how many? Well, first of all, Provincetown, they don't have serial killers, Jennifer. I mean, they don't. What little I know. They, this is, I know. Must have been it, well, evid- evidently. Yeah, evidently they do, Gwen. Okay. <laughs> and, and the reason that Tony was able to kill in plain sight, because he really did. He only killed people he knew. Um, and they would just disappear and Tony would say, ah, you know, hippies here today, gone tomorrow kind of thing. Um, and the reason he was able to, to, to kill the numbers he did is that P-Town, um, like, uh, you know, I, I suppose a lot of outlying communities was its own Sodom and Gomorrah and its own Norman Mailer called it the wild west of the East coast. And it's where the artists of New York and Boston would go to do their drugs and to have their gay sex and to to kind of, you know, to be outside of that um, very provincial uh, corseted world Mm -hmm. of the upper crust of Boston and New York. And so Tony took his drugs and walked the streets high as a kite and 
so did everybody else. And when the girls started disappearing and he said, well, you know, she said she was going to Mexico with some hippies. They were like, oh, yeah, that kind of sounds like Susan. Mm, okay. And nobody really questioned it. And it wasn't until he made the fatal error that a lot of um, serial killers do because serial killers are not <laughs> the, the, the smartest They're of the not. bunch. Um, he got greedy. And his last two victims were driving this really spiffy late model VW bug. And he thought, ooh, that's a shame to just leave it in the woods and have it rot. I mean, they're not going to oh, need wow. it anymore. And so he took their car. And when the police um, and the girls had been rooming in his rooming house. So when the police started calling, saying, Tony, do you know anything about these girls? They've disappeared. Everybody's worried about them. Tony's like, no, 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 I'm in Burlington now. He's on his way to Canada. I'm in Burlington, Vermont now, but I don't know anything. And he, then he called back like less than a day later and said to this cop, Jimmy, because, of course, they all knew each other. You know, Jimmy, I'm going to come back to P-Town and, you know, clear my name. And Jimmy was like, what do you mean, clear your name? You said you haven't seen him. He goes, well, I have their car. Okay. So it was like, dun, 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 dun. <laughs> That was the beginning of the end for Tony Costa. How many victims Thank God. did he Well, have? five bodies that we know of. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, at that point in time, there were 4,000 missing girls and young women in New England alone. Mm -hmm. So, and many of them have never been found, never been identified. So we don't know. His own lawyer suspected him as him of upwards of 13. Mm -hmm. And I was able to solve three cold cases. When I came to the story, he, he, his body count was eight. And three of those were air quotes, never seen alive again. And as a journalist, I said, you know, I can't cut and paste that line. I don't know it to be true. And I don't want one of those women, now women, to read the book and go, yo, Jennifer, mm. here I am. Like, come on, do your research, girlfriend. So I started digging and digging and digging. And it took, wow, it took upwards of almost a year to kind of track down all the possibilities of, who, you know, where these women could be, who they could be now, all the name changes. And I found they were all dead, not by Tony Costa's hand, but they'd all since died. But I found their sisters and I found their daughters and was able to say definitively, nope, take three out of Tony Costa's Dossett because they're not, these are not part of them. So that it was, and it was wonderful to, you know, to solve those three cold cases and to tell those sisters and daughters, like, yeah, you know, your, your sister and your mother had, you know, until today been identified on Wikipedia and everything else as one, as a victim of a serial killer. And one of the sisters said to me, oh my God, I can just see my sister, cigarette in one hand, scotch in the other, slapping her knee saying, what? Tony Costa kill me? Are you kidding me? That wuss from P-Town? Mm. So it was it was uh, one of the joys of being a researcher. Well, it's a moment. It's amazing work. And uh, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about about your work. I hope we can have you on again sometime. Absolutely. And if you want uh, Liza to talk about being the, you know, the child uh, in the, the, the child survivor of a serial killer. She'd be more than happy to talk oh, about the babysitter. That would be that would be something we'd be interested in. Yes, thank you. Yeah, you could connect Alrighty. us. You know her. <laughs> I will. I certainly do. <laughs> Jennifer Jordan, uh, the babysitter is the book. She's got a lot of books and films. Go to jenniferjordan.net and have a wonderful day. Thanks again. Thank you, Gwen. Take Same care. to you.
And thank you all for tuning in this morning to It's Too Early. I'm going to come back with your headlines and weather forecast. We're going to play a song first. This is the Black Keys, Crawling Kingsnake, Island 1069. Stick around. (laughs) 